Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to Know Your Options, the measured risk podcast. The ultimate guide to navigating the volatile nature of the markets while managing risk purposefully. Join us as we challenge the theory behind traditional asset allocation and dive into the mathematics of investing. Whether you are a seasoned investor or just starting out, this podcast offers valuable insights and practical advice to help you make informed decisions and manage your money wisely. So grab a cup of coffee, sit back, and let's dive into the world of calculated risks together. Well, hello, everybody. This is Larry Kriesmer with the Know Your Options podcast, and I'm here today with a different kind of guest, Rick Rosenthal. He's with CBOE, the Chicago Board of Options Exchange uh, Director. Welcome, Rick. Thank you very much, Larry. Appreciate you inviting me. You bet. So uh, I know you're a director of something, but it had a long title. So why don't you explain what it is that you uh, do and what your role is with the CBO? Sure enough. So I've been with CBO. I started in uh, 2015. I'm a seasoned uh, professional, been in the industry for about 40 plus years. And my role at CBO has, trans- I would say, transitioned. Originally, I was a product expert in the FTSE Russell index options. And today, my focus is primarily helping advisors uh, understand the benefits of using options-based strategies. They don't have to be the experts, but they have to understand as fiduciaries how to communicate to their clients the ability to maybe generate income, manage downside risk, or enhance risk-adjusted returns with well-defined options-based strategies. So my role is, is helping these under helping the advisors understand these solutions. And then uh, if we can uh, help them along the curve, we'll help them uh, implement those strategies, introducing them to uh, potential sub-advisors and and, uh, 40-act funds. Awesome. So what do you think is the most common strategy that is an option-based strategy that's being deployed out there right now? Sure. Without a doubt, most financial advisors that comfortable with options start off with a covered right. They have a client that has a concentrated stock position, and uh, typically that's an emotional uh, holding that uh, the the client does not want to sell. And the advisor can actually generate some incremental returns selling a an out-of-the-money call. So in other words, the client holds on to the stock and they sell a call that's above the market. The uh, premium that's collected from the sale of the call becomes a, a source of income. And uh, this is actually done on a uh, risk-free basis. In other words, the client owns the stock. They're not expected to sell it. They sell the call above the market. If the market does by chance go up to the stri- strike price, uh, there is a chance that the uh, call could be assigned. So selecting the appropriate strike is key. And uh, so that's a very popular strategy for the advisors that are new to using options. Yeah, I think it's it really is a, a common kind of almost conception that if you use options, that's what you're doing. That's then that's all you're doing. Uh, one of the things that we have here at Measured Risk Portfolios is uh, trying to avoid getting put into that bucket because we actually don't do covered call writing here. I mean, it's done for some clients on 
a one-off basis, but the core strategy doesn't do that. Uh, but it is really what the, the I would say the the general advisor population thinks about when they think about options. So there, it's interesting too. Uh, I've whenever I get pushback from either a, a client or an advisor about an you know, option strategy not performing well or not doing what they expected, it's always interesting to me. Be, or they have, let's say they have, say have a bad experience with options. And what's funny about that um, observation is that if somebody had a bad experience with an option the person on the other side of that contract had a good experience. And that's always what's interesting about um, options to me is that it's not the options fault what it did. It's the, it's the premise that the person who bought it or sold it um, had, and it didn't, didn't work out that way. So that that's what I think is interesting about options is they just add such an amount of uh, control. If you're on the control side of the equation or a tremendous amount of risk if you're on the uh, obligation side of the transaction. So that's that's pretty fascinating. But you're you're absolutely right. I mean, options are really a tool, and you can use them for a variety of objectives. So depending, I mean, the basic building block is the call, which gives the investor the right to own something, or the put, which gives the investor the right to sell something. But you can use these tools to define the kind of risk and return you want or your client wants from an investment. And what makes this so powerful is that you can actually create an asymmetric return. You take a, an exposure to the S&P 500 and you can actually truncate the downside participation and enhance the upside participation by designing an options-based strategy. Once again, the advisor or the individual investor doesn't have to be the expert necessarily. They can defer to an expert like yourself that would implement those types of strategies. Right. Well, for instance, you know, the same thing can be done. You talked about an asynchronous payoff where you can um, basically invest money into options and enhance the return of a portfolio and still define a, a drawdown risk. Alternatively, you, you can choose not a speculative side of things or not, not something that's based on growth, but you can choose to create an income component out of the, out of the same, same products. In fact, even the same option. Uh, but if you're the seller of that option, now you're in a situation where you're generating income for the portfolio, but you've now done an asynchronous payoff the other way where you actually are limiting what you can earn and still taking full participation to the downside. And then it gets more complicated. You can layer in additional layers of options to uh, truncate that downside and still have income. Or I mean, it's uh, mind-boggling, really. And I think that's the big uh, drawback or maybe a hurdle for many advisors is that they just start to look at the way you can spin an option construction around a portfolio or in a portfolio or you know as part of an allocation to a portfolio. And wow, it really can get complex. In fact, I think on your cboe.com website, I think there's a list of all the possible types of transactions. Does that exist on your website? Like whether it's a, a spread or a condor or you know a butterfly or all those. Kind of <laughs> yeah, there's Cibo um, um, created a variety of strategy benchmark indexes, mm -hmm. and these are indexes that are intended to measure the performance of specific strategies. So we talked about the buy rights. Uh, we have a buy rights index on the S&P 500, the Russell 2000, the MSCI emerging and IFA indexes. These benchmarks have been very helpful to provide education, but they've also been very helpful to demonstrate use cases. 
And so BXM is the ticker for the S&P 500 buy right. This is looking at a near the money call. Uh, so the, the uh, underlying holding could be the S&P 500 mutual fund. It could be an ETF. It can be a portfolio that has a very high correlation to the S&P 500. And then you can sell our cash settled index option, the SPX or XSP, which is the mini index against that holding. What makes this benchmark interesting, it's systematic. So every 30 days, this position is uh, rolled. And you know, I can get, go into very granular detail about why a, an investor would want to do this. Uh, we're looking at options from the perspective of it, not only the ability to buy or sell, but also the expression of volatility. And built into the pricing of options is several volatility components. Looking back, the 30-day historical volatility, and looking forward, the 30-day expected volatility, and the difference between the implied volatility, the expected, versus the realized, we, we call that the volatility risk premium. And there are times where there's tremendous bullish sentiment in the market, and the volatility is pumped up, creates an opportunity to sell a call while you're owning the underlying. So we talked about BXM. We have variations of that. We have a 30 delta buy right. We have a conditional buy right. And so these are, you know, uh, strategy benchmark indexes that one can uh, go to our website and look at the methodology and look at the historical pricing. So BXM, for example, Sibo.com. I'm going to stop you right there, though, because I mm -hmm. think this is part of the jargon that we get caught into with particularly, I think if you're a, maybe a seasoned option uh, trader, then the, some of the things that you're saying are going to resonate and make sense. But I'm a little concerned that if you haven't got any experience with options, that that last couple of two minutes might have been like, okay, this is why I'm not trading options because it's, <laughs> it's completely complicated. So, so let's try and break this down a little bit. The, um, the main thing to think about is that on, a, on an equity of any kind, you know, whether it's an, an index tradable index, uh, like a, maybe a Vanguard or a BlackRock uh, S&P 500 index ETF or, or mutual fund, you know, the investor has the choice of buying it and then wait and see what happens. And, and then there's no time limit. They can just buy it and sit on it and it either go up in price or go down in price or some of each, some a lot or a little. Uh, and then at some point they can make a decision to either exit some or all that position and move it into something else and move around. So those are, that's basically it. You have a very, very, um, what we would refer to as one dimensional up or down is really the, is really the number. And I think what's really challenging for a lot of advisors initially and for the clients for sure is to get, get the idea that with an option, you're not only picking the direction, but you can choose to be uh, either for or against the direction you're picking. And that can be done through the form of the puts or the calls. And then we have to add another component, which is the time, the time, the actual amount of time we have, because these are contracts. They're not actually equities. They're, they're contracts on something else. So that time value, uh, there is a cost for that time value, but the time itself is a thing. So, you know, we used to have only what uh, quarterlies or something on the S&P. And then it started to be, you know, we got maybe some uh, monthlies and now I think it's daily, right? You can actually buy options with very, very short duration expirations down to the very granular level. But the point is, if you buy a one month option, you've got 30 days to figure out what to do with it. And here in the United States, American style options can be exercised anytime during that period and and or sold 
So you're really just holding a piece of paper or contract that says I, I get the ability to control 100 shares of something for a single option contract. Or if you've sold the contract, which is also referred to as writing the contract, you are obligated to do whatever you said you're going to do. <clears throat> Excuse me. So if you have sold a uh, 100 shares of the S&P 500, for instance, and were paid for that, and you've got to deliver it at the price you agreed to deliver it at some point during that 30-day period. So that's the basics of, of the option contracts. From there, gosh, now we have to deal with strikes. So if the underlying security is trading, let's say at 400, you have to make a decision on whether or not you want to be at the money or what's you know, the ATM type of uh, acronym. And that would be around 400, or you would be out of the money, OTM, which would be above that current price if it's a call, or it would be below the price if it's a put. So again, what it is can change on whether it's a call or a put. And this is where we start to get into the complexity of option trading. And it's, uh, I think, large measure why we, um, actually, I'll, you probably have a better understanding of what type of uh, penetration or usefulness are is options, let's say, in a standard. What, do you cover both RIA and um, broker-dealer relationships, or what type of distribution channel do you work with? Primarily RIAs and family offices. Okay. So in the RIA and family office space, which is appropriate for our audience, what percentage of those out there do you think are using options not as a accommodation for one or two clients, but actually as part of a, either a sleeve or a recommended thing that they would at least be have in their t- uh, tool chest for people? Yeah, this is an interesting point. And I don't have hard facts, but there's been a number of studies. Cerulli did a study in 2017, and uh, there is an investment advisor association that tracks, based on a survey, what percentage of the advisors are, are using options. And it's not as much as you might think. It's about 30%. Yeah. So options are a great way not only to deliver value to a client, but it's also a great way to differentiate your practice because the, the vast majority of advisors simply aren't embracing the benefits of using an options-based strategy. Yeah, I, I can imagine. I mean, it's basically, as you know, we're all in. We have uh, our primary portfolio, measured risk portfolios, is option-based. And so uh, we're, we're a huge believer in the structure that it can bring, particularly in risk management and the ability to be able to sit across from a client or have an advisor help their clients understand that there is a defined amount of risk in the portfolio and that it's actually calculatable. Before before you have a bad experience, you can know what it is you're risking. Um, and we think that's a really, a really strong thing to have. Um, and it gives the clients and the advisors who we partner with um, the ability to help a client really define what that risk is going to be before the risk materializes. Because I tell you one thing, we've been doing this for a long time. And before we were using options, if we had an asset allocation model built off of the assumption that we were going to be investing in different asset classes that historically have had different behavior patterns during during the year, what we find is that when a crisis comes along, whether it's the tech bubble in the early 2000s, or it's the financial crisis in early 08, or it's the pandemic in, in the 20s, or this interest rate crisis that we've just been going through or still kind of going through right now, a lot of those asset classes that we thought would behave a certain way tend to change their stripes. And they maybe can start to lose money where we didn't think we'd lose money or not perform strong enough to, to the upside or the downside, depending on what, what position you put into the portfolio. 
And if you if you find yourself with a portfolio that's declined, you know, 14% or something, and you were expecting only 10, and you get a client phone call and they're like, well, what, what's going on? What do you think is the downside here? The real challenge is in the absence of an option-based strategy, there's kind of a, a hope answer rather than a, a math answer. And we just want advisors to know that through the use of options, there is a much more granular way of uh, building defense or being able to answer that question with, with more confidence. So that's really the mission that uh, Measured Risk is on. And I know that you also, the CBOE, are definitely interested in helping advisors figure out how to implement strategies that can bring those either income um, objectives or risk metric objectives out, out to the public. So that's important. So why do you think, I mean, what are your thoughts on that 30% adoption? Is that uh, lack of education, lack of desire, or this the market doesn't know that it's out there? I think there's conventional thinking. And I think most uh, advisors start off the relationship trying to understand their clients' appetite for risk and what their investment goals are. So oftentimes that begins with a survey uh, or a questionnaire. And from that, an investment policy statement is derived, which then uh, feeds the portfolio allocation decisions. So if a client is willing to take more risk, then there's a greater allocation towards riskier assets. Equities are considered a risky asset class. Uh, you look at the S&P 500, the broad-based uh, U.S. In, you know, index, over time, the annualized return is roughly 7%, and it has a standard deviation of about 20. So your, your clients are looking at potential movement, and this is what we saw in 2022, the S&P moved down by almost 20%. And so the, the buffer, the 40% that was allocated to fixed income, wasn't quite there because what was considered a non-correlated asset became correlated. And when interest rates are roughly one and a half percent, there really isn't that much of a cushion. So I think advisors are starting to look at this 60-40 uh, portfolio mix and wondering what can be done uh, to maybe provide a greater buffer or perhaps uh, allow for optimizing returns by having greater exposure to equities and having something in place to hedge against downside price risk. And I think that's where education comes into play because mm -hmm. that type of strategy does exist. I just came from the Investments and Wealth Institute conference. A lot of talk about shifting from 60-40 to 80-20-20. 80% equities, 20% fixed income, 20% alternatives. Alternatives can be expressed a number of ways. Well, hold on. Um, I got to jump in. You did say 80, 20, 20. That's 120. I'm so sorry. That's... I'm sorry. 60, 20, 20. <laughs> sorry about that. 60, that 20, fancy, 20. That is some fancy math, I got to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Sorry about that. You're absolutely right. 60, 20, 20. Mm -hmm. So well, it's an interesting approach, but what we, um, I'll just do a small plug here for our firm. We're of the kind of observation that all of these, it really what it boils down to when you do a 60, 40, 70, 30, something other than 100% equity, is that the long-term rate of return of, let's say, the S&P 500 is pretty much the 800-pound gorilla that most advisors and managers are trying to benchmark to and, and either stay closed or something close to it. But very few clients, except for the youngest, really are able to really withstand the volatility of being in that um, 
fully because the risk of a drawdown event, uh, we all know is you know something, you know, 50% would not be out of the question at all in a relatively short period of time and maybe worse. And that's one of the challenges of, of any data set is that that's only the data we've had so far. It isn't the data, it isn't what can happen it's only what has happened. And that that's another really important thing to think about with any kind of portfolio construction, no matter how good the algorithm or how uh, sincere the data and how well scrubbed and intentioned, all of these patterns are just patterns that have been observed through either artificial intelligence or real people being you know, looking at something uh, to come up to arrive at something that looks like it's going to be able to weather a fact pattern that already existed, but it doesn't necessarily give us the outcome we want in the future because you know future hasn't happened yet so we don't that's know right. how, how the future is going to come out that's this right is areas where i really love the effect of an option because an option contract is a contract and if you're the buyer of that contract you have rights that have been defined in the contract through the uh the strike price of the security that it's underlying against and the duration of the contract and what you've paid for it and so as soon as you enter into an option contract you have known outcomes, possible outcomes. Uh, you don't know what will happen, but you know with much greater certainty what your outcomes can look like. And that's the huge differentiator that I really encourage advisors and retail clients, if there happen to be any watching or listening here, that with an option contract, you, you start to define certain outcomes. You know going in what your cost is, or you know going in what your risk is. And you can you can make an assessment about whether or not that makes sense or not really anything else the only tool you've got to defend yourself is either to own it or not own it so literally it's a matter of either buying it or selling it and those are such limited choices um, that i really am a fan or a, a cheerleader for people getting into the understanding of how options work and how they can bring uh, clarity and confidence or frankly terrifying fear to your portfolio if you take the wrong side of an option contract so i think that's something that lay people or even advisors if they haven't been paying attention you know could sort of step into a, a, a behavior do something with an option contract have a successful outcome and go oh, that was easy and then repeat it again without really understanding what that option contract might do if it doesn't go the way they thought and you can really end up with some highly levered results that um, maybe weren't what you had in mind so uh, super cautious that you do have to uh, treat an option contract almost like a cobra, you know, it, it can turn around and bite you if you don't know what, what it's capable of. So for sure, you have to know going in what it is that it's capable of. And there are tools like, do you, do you, you have an option calculator on your website? I think we can bring up the CBO yeah. here. So CBO has on its website, a number of tools. One is an options calculator. And where, would the, uh, where is that? Under education or is it under? Under education. Education. Okay. So uh, if you're listening here, we're going to the cboe.com and then there's an education tab. And then is this the practice tools link? So if you were to drop down from tools mm -hmm. and scroll down, there's I'm an sorry. options calculator. I'm in, I'm in education and then I go to option practice tools. Yes. Great. So in the tools, it shows nifty gizmos to help you trade smarter, which is great. And then if I scroll down from here, oh, I see there's an options calculator. And the options calculator is going to help us understand what the cost of options trading. What it does is it uses the Black-Scholes options pricing model. Ah, okay. And you can plug in the variables mm -hmm. and it will tell you what the fair value is for that particular option. So 
do I have to know what the like uh, rho and delta and theta and all these Greeks, or is it going to tell me based on it what will, I'm putting? It will spit that out. I see. So the variables that I'm looking at, I see. Okay, so here's your start time, option strike, and strike price and whatnot. I get it. All right. So what we're looking at on screen, if you're listening to us, is the ability to enter data on the expiration dates and interest rates and theoretical safe money values, and then calculate some of these, uh, what are referred to as the Greeks, which will help measure the effect of things like time decay. We should mention that when you buy an option contract, there is either depending on how much time there is in the contract, there's a significant amount of, of money that's attributable to time. And that time value will erode under a theoretical, this is Black-Scholes model, the theoretical decay of that time value. Because for instance, the easiest way to describe this is if I buy a movie ticket and my movie is gonna be playing tonight at eight o'clock, right now for me, it's about uh, 1.30 in the afternoon. My, my, my movie ticket still has its value, but by about 7.55, that value of that movie ticket's getting less and less valuable because I need to either use it or it's going to become worthless. Because tomorrow, by, you know, let's say roughly 8.30 to tonight, or and certainly by tomorrow morning, my movie ticket for last night's movie is worthless. And the same is true of an option contract. Uh, so people might not think that they have experience with options, but you really do. Uh, if, you've, if you've ever purchased a ticket or you've made a reservation, you know that reservation has value up until the point the reservation time has come and gone, and then it has no value. So very similar kind of uh, relationship. So the other thing that uh, the CBO site has here is a under the education section. Let's go. Scroll down, you'll see trade alert. Trade alert. Um, let's see. Under... You may have to go back. Okay, let's go back and scroll down. So then I go back into practice tools, scroll down, uh, trade alerts. Okay. And the okay. trade alerts can be built also based on strikes and underlying. So trade alert is actually um, highlighting some of the large volume trades. Oh, cool. Uh, it could show um, like the, uh, the, uh, the options that had the greatest increase in volume greatest decrease in volume, greatest increase in open interest or decrease in open interest. So the user can put in parameters and or filters and TradeAlert will spit out data based on the user's parameters. And am I, what I'm looking at right now, I assume you can see our screen too. Is this showing me that uh, Siri, Sirius XM was a big mover today? It, it, it's showing you a trade was canceled. Uh, canceled, okay. Yeah. Interesting. So the, the, the user then, um, you know, they can put in uh, whatever the filters they want to spit out the kind of information they're, they're looking for. So um, where, where does this actually show up, though? Do you have to subscribe in order to have this happen? or where For, do you log for trade alert, I, I think you have to subscribe for that, for I the uh, real-time data. The next one, if you go back, the next item that I think is really very interesting is the trade optimizer. Okay. And if you click on that, for those who are, let's say, neophytes, mm -hmm. and they have a view on the market, let's say uh, neutral, you can plug in a ticker. Up above, you see SIBO is the symbol input, but you can put in... Use SPY, for instance, that's sure. the, the big uh, S&P 500 ETF, tradable ETF, currently trading at about $412, plus or minus. 
And um, so the default expiration is today, but let's say we take it out to uh, September, end of September. And this is giving us oh, just various outputs, right? So it's saying that if you want to buy a put spread or selling a put spread or buying a call spread or selling a call, these are the various uh, P&L for profit and loss illustrations and the cost. That's correct. That's correct. Return, right. So what's interesting about this, if you're not watching when you're listening, is that there are things you can do here, like buying a put spread, um, you know, return at a target price can be, you know, what you spend $2.16 with a potential 131% return over this time period if the market goes to a certain thing. Right. So that's, that's what's right. amazing to me is that the inherent leverage in small dollar transactions, relatively small dollar transactions and what's possible. And they can they have to you have to have a premise. You do have to have a, a decision or an opinion about which way the market's going to move. So if you think the market's going down, you can build a trade to benefit from that. If you think the market's going up, you can build a trade to benefit from that. And if you think the market's going to be neutral and just hang out for a while in a certain place, you can build a trade that will be profitable for that. And again, a lot of people, particularly uh, novice investors, have a hard time understanding this. The best example I've come up with is the idea that most people that we work with in financial services have been able to purchase a home. And in most cases, they haven't written a check for the whole house. They've actually put a deposit down on the house. And so think about the, the inherent leverage in the deposit kind of uh, illustration for a home. You know, let's say you take a $500,000 house and you only have to put 10% down. So it's $50,000 and that's your equity in the house when you're done and you've borrowed $450,000 to buy it. If the house moves up in value 10% over the next X months or a year or so, you know, your house is now worth 550,000, but the equity in the property, that $50,000 that you invested is actually got a hundred percent return because your 50,000 equity has grown to a hundred thousand dollars. So this is the idea that is really fundamental to options is the ability to have a small amount of capital. In this case, you know, the $50,000 down payment on the house control a much larger asset, which in this case is the $500,000 value of the house. You can do a similar thing with the option contracts where you have a small amount of capital in this case uh, on the first uh, put spread uh, $2.16 is controlling $400 worth of individual share value. And that's a huge, huge, that's a basically, you know, a 5% type of capital commitment. And that's where you can get some really tremendous movements if, if the market goes the direction that your option contract construction is designed to benefit from. If it doesn't go that way, and you're the owner of the contract and not the seller, then your loss is limited to what you've paid for your option contract construction, whether it's a single contract or a spread or a whole bunch of option contracts in a more complicated transaction. So you can build it in a way that you know what your risk is going in and you can have a very asynchronous return um, structure going out. How'd I do? Rick, is that about summing it up? I think that's fantastic. You think you did a great job. Uh, one thing that we uh, didn't cover, and unfortunately we're almost out of time, I yeah. think it's important to note that options are really very effective for managing risk. And we did not really go into uh, detail on a collar, uh, but a collar strategy allows the investor to hold on to a position, not sell it, but you know, hold on to a position. You know, for example, we're coming into uh, a period of time where Congress has to decide whether they're going to raise the debt ceiling or not, it may create some uncertainty, it may create uh, some more volatility. And investors are becoming less comfortable maybe having the 
exposure to to equities. One way to address that is to sell the stock, but then you incur uh, you know, capital uh, gains potentially and taxes on capital gains. Um, the alternative is to protect your equity position, and you can buy a put or you can put on a collar, which is another way of saying you buy a put and then you sell a call to finance the cost of the put. And there are variations of that strategy that can be very effective, putting on a hedge for the specific time period where you want that protection. Absolutely. What I think we use this uh, in our practice a lot to help people with coming up with like a, a tax realization budget. So we may bring in a client's portfolio that has some long-term positions that have a very low cost basis and have appreciated a lot over time. Uh, but they recognize that that's not necessarily the safest place to be because they have a concentrated stock position. They'd like to take advantage of what we're offering, but they're really kind of um, trying to manage the tax liability. And what we're able to do is build those collars and have a discussion around, you know, how much tax budget do we have annually to maybe work ourselves out of this position over, you know, could be five years or 10 years. It doesn't have to be right away in order for us to, to start doing that transition. But we can bring to bear the immediate defense of, as you're saying, this collar. And what this amounts to is, you know, stock trading at 100. We end up maybe selling a 108 call to bring in income to then finance the purchase of maybe a 92 put. And then we could get more fancy and maybe sell a call spread uh, that is less expensive, but still allows maybe potential for a runaway, runaway upside or potentially only buy a put spread by selling another put below the first put to reduce the cost of the put and allow for a big chunk of uh, the potential loss to be buffered out and still generate net income on the call side or move the strike further away so we don't have to have the risk of being called out. The the point is in the hands of a, a seasoned option advisor, there are a number of very significant resources that can be brought to bear for those concentrated positions or just in a in a retransitioning type of experience. So good point, excellent point. Also, you know, CBOE, every every document we have is going to suggest that options are not suitable for all investors. You really should work with either a qualified person to understand what you're doing to make sure you don't hurt yourself. And I think that's an excellent way to get to the end of our show. So, Rick, thank you so much for sharing your time with me today. And if any advisor wants to reach out to you directly, is that something that they can do? Are you available for direct consultation? or Absolutely. I encourage them. My email address is rrosenthal, R-O-S-E-N-T-H-A-L, at cboe.com. And uh, Larry, thank you very much for inviting me to join your podcast. It's been a pleasure. This interview also may contain statements that constitute endorsements of measured risk portfolios, also known as MRP. Please note that any such statements are not made by clients of MRP, but by representatives of other investment advisory firms that work with MRP. No compensation was offered or given in exchange for these statements. However, a conflict of interest exists due to the incentive to give an endorsement in the interest of a good future working relationship between the endorser and MRP.